Hey, hey, Prime members, talking to you. You can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod. Or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Yes, there's millions of people came into the streets for Soleimani. It's provided the, the, the ruling order with a respite. It's created nationalism in Iran. Uh, people in Iran are supportive of the government facing the U.S., but the, the economic problems persist. And Iran cannot tolerate this for another year, another two years, because then they, their economy will go to dust. And so the question is, can President Trump turn this moment into a serious diplomatic initiative. And I think the feeling largely is that he's very good at pressure and his assumption is somehow that Iranians will just surrender. I'm Gail King. I'm Anthony Mason. And I'm Tony DeCopo. And this is a CBS This Morning podcast. I'm Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation and senior foreign affairs correspondent for CBS News in Washington. This week, Iran and the United States inched towards all-out war after President Donald Trump ordered the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Iraq last week, sending Hellfire missiles fired from a U.S. drone into his vehicle just outside Baghdad airport. The Pentagon says its drone strike targeting Major General Qasem Soleimani was aimed at deterring future attacks by Iran. It's part of President Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign against the Iranians. But there are fears that the killing of Soleimani, a revered figure in Iran and some other places in the Middle East, could see simmering tensions between the U.S. and Iran turn explosive. That prompted Iran to fire ballistic missiles on two U.S. bases in Iraq Tuesday night. This all came after Iran-backed militia led protesters to try and storm the U.S. embassy in Baghdad last week in the wake of a U.S. strike on that militia following the death of a U.S. contractor. This is the culmination of months of escalating tensions. But what happens next? To help us dig in a little bit on that big question, I'm joined by Barbara Leaf, a Washington Institute fellow and foreign service officer who has served in high-level positions at home and abroad, including as U.S. ambassador to the United Arab Emirates and deputy assistant secretary of state for Iraq from 2011 through 2013. And Middle East scholar Vali Nasser. He is the former dean of Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies and former senior advisor to the State Department. Good to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I think it was fair to say the universal reaction at first was, wow, Qasem Soleimani is gone. Uh, we now appear to be in this uncertain time period, but we do know, Vali, that we had uh, a brigadier general named Amir Ali Hajizadeh, am I mm-hmm. saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. The head of the Revolutionary Guard say this week, we did not intend to kill with those missiles that were sent into bases in Iraq. We intended to hit the enemy's military machinery. Uh, 
Is this a signal that both sides are cooling off and we are stepping back from the brink of war? Well, uh, yes. I mean, the simple answer is yes. But I don't think Iran actually benefits from a direct confrontation with the U.S. They would lose that very easily. That's not their advantage. So they had to do something in order to satisfy their own constituency that they took action uh, and, and also to signal to the United States that they have missiles, they have these capabilities uh, and that they're willing to uh, use them. But I think Iran uh, would have wanted to basically get past this phase of, of having to react and then sit down and strategize about what do they do next. I, I also do think they nobody expected Soleimani is going to get killed. I don't think they had a blueprint for a response to the U.S. off the shelf that they were going to bring down and, and, and uh, implement. And even if they're thinking there's going to be war with the United States, they still need time to prepare for it. This isn't the time for them. So I think they've bought themselves time to think. The funeral was beneficial. It was several days that they could just not do anything and say we're, we're mourning. And now they've taken a measure. The United States is not going to do anything other than sanctions. So this gives them time to think what the next step is. So when President Trump said Iran is backing down, it sounds like you're saying, but they're still not completely done with retaliation. Well, no, I don't. Well, it's not just retaliation. They're still in a conflict with the United States. I mean, if let's say if we each side went back to their corners, Iran is still under those draconian sanctions. And Iran, since May of uh, uh, 2019, has been uh, hitting at the U.S., at, at, at its Persian Gulf neighbors, as a way of provoking the United States to get back to the table. A, a status quo at this stage does not benefit Iran. And, and they will still have to do find some way to get out of it. Uh, it sounds sometimes counterintuitive to say they're trying to provoke to get to a negotiation. But you're of the school of thought that they're trying to raise the cost for the rest of the people still in the uh, JCPOA, the landmark nuclear deal, to offer them something to behave better, essentially. Absolutely. And also to tell the President Trump that that uh, maximum pressure is not a cost-free strategy. Because mm-hmm. I think the first year the Iranians decided they didn't do anything big. And then the president came out and, and, told, and said that he's going to take Iran's uh, oil exports down to zero. And the Iranians have also seen that it's is producing political cost in form of demonstrations on the street that they had to suppress very aggressively. So they they also want to send a message to the to to the United States that that maximum pressure may end up uh, getting the United States to a place they didn't want to go, war, having to send troops to the region, something very costly and that President Trump has to come up with a diplomatic strategy that that would lift sanctions on Iran. The Iranians have not succeeded as much as President Trump has not succeeded so far. Ambassador, in the immediate term, uh, it has caused great concern on the ground in Iraq, where there are at least 5,000 U.S. troops. There's also diplomatic personnel, other agencies serving in that country. Um, Beyond the near-term risk, what does this mean um, it's been described as seismic, an earthquake to take out Qasem Soleimani. He was hugely influential in Iraq. What happens to the U.S. interest in that country now that he's gone? Well, uh, that's one of the many questions of the day. But I think, you know, the repercussions of Qasem Soleimani's death in Iraq go well beyond uh, the question of does the U.S. military uh, training and advising presence stay or go? Uh, it, it has possibly 
huge repercussions for these, uh, you know, his lasting legacy in Iraq, a terrible legacy in my view, which is this uh, proliferation of Shia militia uh, organizations that while they have been formally pulled into the state as of 2016, they really have a dual key sort of command and control. In other words, they do not uh, they do not follow the state. And we saw that very clearly, uh, not just in the events of the last 10 days, but going back further for months, Khattab Hezbollah was shelling with impunity, shelling U.S. training sites. This is one of the militias. This is the militia the whose the leader, struck. exactly, whose leader was taken out, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. So uh, you have... You have the U.S. having struck a blow not only in terms of Qasem Soleimani, who was the architect of of this approach to the region, but also one of the most powerful, possibly the most powerful militia figure in Iraq. And that has sent uh, the militia movement uh, reeling. It's also created this further ferment, as you, as you noted, within the Iraqi body politic. And I guess we'll talk about that in a moment in terms of the parliamentary vote and what that did or didn't mean. Uh, it's too soon to say by far how this will affect the U.S. presence. But the U.S. presence has a, has much wider implications for Iraq. Iraq has been sort of this battleground for influence that the U.S. and Iran have been at each other trying to um, carve out a government that looks more like what serves their respective interests. What you're describing is part of that influence process of what Qasem Soleimani was able to do on behalf of Iran's interests. Now that he's gone, is there anyone else who can kind of orchestrate and pull together all the militias in the way that he could? Does this in some way make Iran have less influence in Iraq? Not as yet, because these militias are really taking, have taken hold in Iraq in a, in a, in a really destructive fashion. So they have large representation in the parliament now. But you also have, you also have uh, pol- political figures like Hadi Al-Amri, who is the head of the Badr organization, one of the oldest and uh, most powerful militias who serves within the government. You have Falah Fayyad, who is both the national security advisor, but head of the popular mobilization forces, the whole umbrella group. And um, I don't think there's any question which way they vote. They are very close to Iran and they are part of this militia project, which, which threatens to make Iraq a, a militia state. So when you talk about the, the proxy war between the U.S. and Iran, I think it's really important to note that war started on the battlefield back in 2004, 2005, when Qasem Soleimani was setting up these militias. But in a sense, it was a one-sided war. And even today, the U.S., The U.S. goals for Iraq over the course of three administrations now, who are very different one from another, has been to secure a a level of stability and security for Iraq, but also an integration of Iraq back into the neighborhood and back into the international community. And that's that's very much not uh, Iran's uh, vision for Iraq. Vali, when it comes to the U.S. presence in Iraq, the current president campaigns saying he's bringing the troops home. The prior president campaigned saying he was bringing the troops home. You have a number of Democratic candidates who are essentially saying the same thing um, with varying different policies. But 
When I interviewed the president last February, he said the entire justification for him of keeping a presence in Iraq was to look across the border at what's happening in Iran. Being in Iraq was a mistake. Okay, being in Iraq, it was a big mistake to go. One of the greatest mistakes going into the Middle East that our country has ever made. One of the greatest mistakes that we've ever made. But you want to keep trips there now. when it was chosen, well, we we spent a fortune on building this incredible base. We might as well keep it. And one of the reasons I want to keep it is because I want to be looking a little bit at Iran because Iran is a real problem. Well, that's news. You're keeping troops in Iraq because you want to be able to strike in Iran? No, because I want to be able to watch Iran. All I want to do is be able to watch. We have an unbelievable and expensive military base built in Iraq. It's perfectly situated for looking at all over different parts of the troubled Middle East. Mm -hmm. Rather than pulling up, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, we're going to keep watching And we're going to keep seeing. And if there's trouble, if somebody's looking to do nuclear weapons or other things, we're going to know it before they do. Is that how Iran views the U.S. presence? Purely a direct threat to them? I think so. And it sort of feeds into into exactly the way in which they they see the U.S. presence in Iraq, not as a stabilizing force, but as something that's threatening to Iran. I mean, you know, we have to sort of think uh, all the commanders of the Revolutionary Guard, the senior ones, including Soleimani, are veterans of the Iran-Iraq war. They have a view of Iraq ultimately as a dangerous staging ground against Iran. Uh, and, the, and the danger to them is either if it's under a Sunni control, you know, back to another kind of a, a, a Arab leader who's closer to Saudi Arabia and the United States and may again become uh, sort of the the force that's going to push against Iran. And let's not forget that Iraq sits uh, uh, next to Iran's most important, one of Iran's most important provinces, the province that has all the oil. And therefore, they are extremely nervous about an Iraq that's not under their control. And I think the decision to dispatch Soleimani early on into Iraq was really based on what uh, 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 then Vice President Cheney said, we're taking Iraq, Tehran is next. I mean, even the decision to go nuclear was made at that point in time. So Iran takes U.S. presence in the Middle East, a U.S. threat to itself, extremely seriously. And and I think the collapse of the nuclear deal, because the nuclear deal was a moment, you might say, that, that trust was gradually being built. The collapse of the nuclear deal convinces them that, uh, that you know, Iran and the United States are an, still on an adversarial path and that Iraq is likely to be a, a very big piece of this. And I would just say, even even the decision by the supreme leader to send Soleimani to Syria to defend Assad, uh, you know, to the teeth, was that if Damascus falls, Baghdad is going to fall after that. If Damascus falls to sort of pro-Saudi, pro-Gulf, Sunni leadership, uh, then uh, Baghdad is indefensible. And therefore, uh, you have to sort of save Assad. It's kind of like Iran's own version of domino theory. Mm -hmm. And, and therefore, uh, you know, this is very deeply embedded. And part of the significance of Soleimani is not that he was the instigator of this policy. He's the executor. He's sort of the, bureau, the top bureaucrat, if you would. And he was very good at it. And of course, it's a very dirty business because, uh, as uh, Barbara said, uh, Iran's only uh, real way of doing this is to create an alternative to the Iraqi military. And in fact, the, every time we say we're advising the I- Iraqi military, that's the reason we're there. That's a strategic threat. Because what they see is that there's going to be a military created in Iraq that is going to be an American uh, 
military one day might stage a coup in Baghdad, mm-hmm. and you're going to end up with a with a regime that is anti-Iran, and you're back to 1980, and even before during the time of the Shah. So, for them, PMF is ultimately their their defense against uh, is a balance to the military that the U.S. is creating. And, 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 and I think that's the psychology. Uh, the popular terms. mobilization The forces, popular mobilization the forces. But, they, they won't give it up exactly because yeah. it's a counterbalance. But of course, that's highly, highly destructive an approach Absolutely. to take to Iraq, which has uh, been so enfeebled by decades of, of war and sanctions and uh, civil war and, uh, and then uh, the war against ISIS. So for Iraqis... Um, and I, you know, I think it's worth touching on on the protest movement that has just uh, hit the 100-day uh, mark. For those Iraqis who have turned out, by and large, Shia, um, in, in across Iraq, across southern Iraq, in every province, uh, they have, they turned out in huge frustration about chronic, you know, lack of services, lack of employment, corruption, endemic in the government. These are the protests over the past few months. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Since October 1st. But what has increasingly become a, a very strong the- thematic in the protests are an anti-Iran thematic because they view these militias, because again, this militia project is viewed as, as, as a legacy of Iran's approach to Iraq. So these militias themselves have been feeding at the public trough. They're no longer the much vaunted heroes or only the much vaunted heroes of the counter-ISIS fight. But they have become very, uh, they've become parasites and armed parasites. And indeed, you've had both the Iraqi security forces and uh, non-uniformed, what everybody understands to be militia, uh, snipers and others brutally cracking down on these protests. I think this very much comes into the way uh, both Iraqis in the street, the public look at Iran, as well as the way Iran is looking at Iraq these days. So when President Trump... um goes so far as to threaten sanctions on Iraq, as he did this past week. What would the impact of that be on a state facing all the challenges you just well, described? First of all, psychologically, it's it's terrible. I mean, just just the word uh, reverberates through a generation that remembers acutely uh, the, the the terrible days of the '90s up till 2003. Now. Some 60% of the Iraqi population doesn't remember that. They were born after 2001, 2003, but their parents do. And more to the point, the the government, the the political class does. Obviously, it would be devastating. But what I'm saying is even even the notion of lofting that into the air as a policy approach uh, is is terrifying. And it would be fairly easy to do in that... Iraq still has to buy a lot of oil from Iran. That's right, Margaret. So, so really, it's a matter of shutting off those waivers, and that could be devastating. And, and actually, that will simply, it will more, it will drive Iraq, Iraq uh, further into a, a sort of dependency and a weakness vis-a-vis Iran. So I hope that that will not be one of the policy options that the administration reaches for. Well, what are, back in Tehran, <laughs> what are the policy options that the Supreme Leader is looking at? I was I was talking to um, some Western officials just in the past few days who were all sort of trying to forecast what might be happening and saying this is kind of a gamble. We want to see who around the Supreme Leader can most influence him right now to push him towards a negotiating table. 
I'm sure there's a, uh, there, there are world leaders who are talking to both capitals. Uh, we know that at least the Omani foreign minister was in Tehran and, 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 and maybe carrying messages uh, back and forth. The Qatari was as well. The Qatari went, uh, went, went right away, although I think that was more about management of uh, because they house CENTCOM, they mm. want to make sure that they don't become the first target for, <laughs> for some kind of an Iranian reaction. But, but you know, the, I, I don't think the Iranians are averse to talking. Uh, in New York, they came very close. Uh, it, it, there was no disagreement over what an initial, say, ceasefire agreement between U.S. and Iran would be, that Iran would stay in the nuclear deal, maybe reverse some of the steps that it has taken so far and go back fully in the deal and behave better in the region. You're talking about this past September this past at September. the United Nations. Uh, and then, and then uh, in, in exchange for which the U.S. may re- resume some of the exemptions it gave Iran, up to, say, a million barrels of oil, and then it can be time-limited, let's say, uh, for 90 days to allow talks to start. The problem was that um, the Iranians don't trust that President Trump means it, that uh, basically what he wants is a photo opportunity. And even though there was agreement, President Macron negotiated it back and forth, uh, uh, starting in Biarritz in the summer at G20 all the way to New York, uh, in rea- they couldn't get into a meeting because President Trump would make absolutely no commitments of any sanctions relief until he had the meeting. And the Iranians basically said that if you're serious, you would you would do this and then, you know, we can have a meeting and that might provide a basis. I think the Iranians would still be uh, open to that largely because they need it. Uh, I mean, Iran, uh, 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 yes, there's millions of people came into the streets for Soleimani. It's provided the the, the ruling order with a respite. It's created nationalism in Iran. Uh, People in Iran are supportive of the government facing the U.S., but the, the economic problems persist. And Iran cannot tolerate this for another year, another two years, because then they their economy will go to dust. And so I think it's there. The question is, can President Trump turn this moment into a serious diplomatic initiative? And I think the feeling largely is that he's very good at pressure and his assumption is somehow that, the, that, that, that Iranians will just surrender. And look, we know in this region that dictatorships don't surrender. We can look at Libya, look at Saddam, look at, look at Syria. I mean, I don't think the Islamic Republic is ready to say here's a white flag, mm-hmm. we're handing the keys to the country and, and we're going to go sit somewhere else. And, uh, and, 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 and therefore they, they, they lash out largely because the president is not providing a diplomatic uh, uh, rat. I, I actually think the issue is not whether Iran is ready. The issue is that in this election year, mm-hmm. is the president of the United States willing to take a risk and say I'm putting, let's say, 500,000 barrels of oil or a million barrels of oil on the table as a condition for, for a meeting, and then I'll renew it after three months if that meeting was successful, right? That, that actually requires him to put political capital on the table. So I would also throw in, though, that I think it's really important to watch uh, two places to see, uh, to test that proposition, uh, Valley, in terms of whether Iran is going to posture itself towards a hard-nosed diplomatic game or whether it's going to go back to a playbook it uses regularly. And, of course, it used all through the summer in both Iraq and in the Gulf. I think those are the two places you have to to watch. We've seen that effort um, renewed uh, and a lot of talk from Tehran and, of course, from uh, Iraqi militia leaders in Baghdad that the project to get U.S. forces out of Iraq is on. 
So the question is, how do they do that? Um, I thought it was really interesting that Asab al-Haq, one of the major uh, militias that has very large representation in the parliament, um, the head of Asab al-Haq, Kaysal Khazali, said, well, we're not going to target anything except the troops. So target them how? Target them politically, again, pushing the government, uh, target them literally with, with rockets and so forth. So if they go back to, to that sort of thing, the rocketeering, uh, well, I think that, that muddies everything. And in the same way, if they go back to what was really a very, uh, very thinly deniable um, cat and mouse game uh, of the summer of limpet mines on tankers and strike on pipelines and then up cake, um, I, th- I think, you know, that, that throws all of this into disarray. So I, I do think we're in a pause in a cycle but whether that's a kinetic cycle, which has been the case for some years, or it's a diplomatic one, I think is quite unclear. Well, I, I would just add that, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. But but the question is, can this pause be extended? Yes. And can you actually, if the president mm-hmm. is serious, uh, th- there has to be some secret talks. We can't be negotiating. Who's credible? Who could lead that negotiation? Well, uh, the first thing is that you actually have to empower somebody like Macron or, or Abe or the Omani uh, uh, um, foreign minister, the way in which uh, President Obama did. You have to actually have some secret talks, arrive at cer- certain things that the president of the United States is willing to deliver and they're willing to deliver. And presumably, sorry, yeah. Vali, but I, I've always been struck by the fact that the president is very stuck on this notion of a meeting between himself and mm-hmm. Rouhani, for instance. When, as we know from, you know, in government, you, you do a lot exactly. of spade work beforehand. And it's not just a Macron or an Abe. You've got to have U.S. officials at a much lower level beginning to meet directly with Iranian officials. Again, back channel, but, but it's, that's got to that's be the pathway before you get to a... But the U.S. has already uh, put all sorts of travel restrictions and sanctions on their chief diplomat, Javad yeah. Zarif. Yes. Uh, that would make it hard, presumably, well, to bring him in. in and the president has directly places. said on Twitter that he thinks he's not going to support Macron and what he's trying to do. Well, you, you, well, you know, there, the, uh, there's, there's a public face to these conversations yes. and the Iranians are going to say all kinds of things. Yes. And the question is, can you actually get a dynamic going? Look, in, when, when the president got serious about Afghanistan, he appointed uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, who's not a sort of a typical person you would associate with, with the administration. He was a pragmatic person and 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 things began moving uh, uh you know i think i think uh, uh you, you know that whether it's the current team uh, although i find it difficult how secretary pompeo given how bombastic he has been can get in a room because one danger is that you could get in a room with iranians and you could have a big fight and come out and things <laughs> and that actually work yes. right uh, diplomatically, diplomatically. I mean. <laughs> but but i think barbara is absolutely right you know the problem that why the iranians don't believe that the president is serious, is that kind of a work hasn't been done. So he arrives in New York and says, I want to see Rouhani. There's no agenda for the meeting. There's no uh, outcome promise. They don't want a photo op. And so I I think they are ready because they really need the meeting. They need a successful meeting in which they get a million barrels of oil at least. And then the question is, what are they willing to give for that? Mm -hmm. I think Barbara is absolutely right. So are you going to go back to where you were in May of 2019 in the JPCOA, in other words, you reverse all of the five steps you've taken. Are you willing to um, uh, uh, then, you know, guarantee that you're going to control the the militias and not do these sets of things in, that you did in the summer? Why would that be on the table now when it wasn't in the past with the 
landmark deal that was negotiated back in You mean the militias and so forth? Yes. Well, because that's a flashpoint issue now. That's very clear. But why would Iran be willing to put it on the table now when they weren't in the past? Well, because it's a, it's a we're in a new phase. I mean, what's past is past. We're in a new phase. So what I found fascinating over the summer was you had the May 5th statement by John Bolton. You know, any attack on U.S. interests or those of our partners will be met with unrelenting force. Qasem Soleimani basically said, I'll take that bet. And a week later, you had the, the, the four tankers attacked off Fujairah. And then two days later, you had the attack on the east-west pipeline and off to the races. Now, throughout that period, what Pompeo and the president then started cal- recalibrating was an attack on an American. And then you had, at the same time, these uh, Khatab Hezbollah attacks on U.S. Uh, training personnel. It was only a matter of time. Then they got the whole cycle that occurred in this last two weeks. So I think it's pretty clear. You hit an American, mm-hmm. and this president will hit you back. And he'll hit you back big. So I think, yes, that is. this is why I pose the question, will they actually constrain the militias as part of this de-escalation? And what's happening behind the scenes from other players in the region? Because when you saw, you referenced the attack on the uh, Saudi oil facility, the Aramco oil facility over the summer. Those attacks weren't necessarily met with a response of force. It they was kind of a, let's not even directly blame Iran for having carried this out. What do players in the region want I, to have happen? I, I mean, uh, at least for, from uh, one angle is that uh, even if the U.S. had acted, I think what Iranians showed, particularly in, 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 in Abqaiq with Aramco hit, was their technological capabilities. So it was not just provoca- provocation, it was also kind of a deterrence. I think the the idea is that uh, if we ever get into a hot war with the U.S., uh, that countries of the southern shore of the Persian Gulf are going to get the blowback. So, and it know, was a message to the wider international community. Right. You know, you take almost half of Saudi oil production offline like right. that. Uh, and, OK, the Saudis got it back online in a couple of days. But still, that's a message yeah, to the wider absolutely. community going to that issue of Iran feeling pressure and wanting to shake things up. But how the how the Gulf partners react. You're right, Margaret. Um there has been a very, very muted response all through the summer, and even in the wake of Qasem Soleimani's uh, death, they you are had Saudi seeking... officials here in Washington. That's right, it's kind of a quiet meeting. No, and they have had their own back channel talks because they they don't want to be targets, right? Say so they are trying to at some places they're not sure about President Trump because you know the other danger is that if they actually talks to Iran, then they're back to the Obama years again, right? So they're almost caught in a no-win situation. And look, imagine uh, Iranians don't need to even do something as drastic. I mean, how many drones, you know, flying close to the airports in in, in UAE will shut down, you know, the, the airlines, these airports? I mean, they're very, very vulnerable to uh, to sort of a blowback uh, in, in confrontation with, with the U.S., and so everybody's had a, a very clear reminder of the costs on all sides. The Iranians know the costs. The Gulf countries knew the costs before this summer, but it was reinforced um, very dramatically. So, uh, I, you know, I think it would be well and good for Gulf countries to open normal channels with, in fact, uh, you know, renormalize relations with Iran in partnership with big moves by the U.S. diplomatically. What I would worry about is that they feel sort of crowded into, or they seem mm-hmm. to feel crowded into some sort of channels with the Iranians post Abqaiq, precisely because they weren't certain of where, where the we, U.S. was. Yeah, exactly. 
We heard from the Trump administration to the degree that they've articulated a policy with Iran, very specific demands, 12 of them. Pompeo, mm-hmm. the secretary of state, frequently refers to the 12 mm-hmm. principles. Um, what he has laid out as they are not saying it's a precondition for talks, but they're saying it's something that has to happen anyway, basically sounds like the U.S. is asking the Iranian regime to no longer be the Iranian regime. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, the Iranian officials said when the 12 came out that these are regime change demands. And I think part of the problem with with President Trump's uh, strategy from day one of coming out of the nuclear deal is that it's not clear what the aim is of maximum pressure is. Is the aim a new nuclear deal? Is the aim better behavior in the region? Is the aim actually for the Islamic Republic to go? And, you know, in, in the protests that happened in Iran uh, and in the eyes of the revolutionary guards and the security forces, I'm not saying that that's the objective fact, but the way they read it is that uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the most violent elements in the, in the protests were actually outsiders who were sent into Iran, who were trained in order to take advantage of the economic pressure. Mm-hmm. So the Iranians have concluded that, look, economic pressure is not about bringing us to the table. It's actually about creating conditions that would bring down the, uh, bring down the regime. Mm-hmm. And, 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 uh, and I think it's the, what happened in protests in Iran had something to do with why Iran escalated much more uh, in terms of killing an American and hitting the base in well, Iran. Well, uh, except that that's been going on for six, seven months. What I, what I, what I would add is that that conspiracy-ridden uh, view of things from Tehran extends to Iraq's protests. Mm-hmm. Now, again, Iraq's protests are organic. There are structural, economic, and social conditions that have people out in the streets and have young Iraqis out in the streets who are 14, 16, 17 years old uh, being uh, brutally repressed and still showing up again, mm-hmm. burning down mm-hmm. uh, militia headquarters. You couldn't have imagined this a couple of years ago. There are virtually no militia headqu- offices open in all of the southern provinces of Iraq. But but the view from Tehran has been, and they have managed to persuade key members of the Iraqi government uh, from the outset, was that these were fomented by the U.S., by the Saudis, by you know mm-hmm. a hidden foreign hand. Um, and so it becomes this uh, this mindset, which then takes you to a logic of brute force. But, 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 but I mean, it's important to sort of know that's actually what they really believe. I mean, you have to yes, sort of exactly. think what your adversary thinks. And, yes. and in Iraq, it's not only the protests, but particularly I think they looked at the burning of their consulate. Yes. That as being sort of not organic. But, you know, this is in their heads. I mean, when you sort of uh, the president says this and then Secretary Pompeo Mm -hmm. says we have these 12 points. And then in their minds, they think all of these protests were orchestrated, uh, that that uh, then that makes it conditions them as to how they react and how do they look at a diplomacy with with the United States. And Barbara, just final word here. Does anyone in the region miss Qasem Soleimani? He does have a lot of blood on his hands. Oh, Iraqi militia leaders do. Um, Bashar al-Assad does, uh, Nasrallah does, the Houthis possibly, um, violent militias do, but uh, for the large part for the Arab Middle East, absolutely not. He's brought untold destruction to Syria. He has helped Bashar al-Assad destroy that country, and he's brought great destruction to Iraq as well. All right. Barbara, Bali, thank you for joining me today. Be sure to tune in to Face the Nation on your local CBS station and on CBSN this Sunday for more. 
Thank you for listening to the CBS This Morning podcast. Be sure to subscribe to get daily podcast originals. You can watch the CBS This Morning broadcast Monday through Saturday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on your local CBS station or live on the CBS All Access app. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast. I'm here with my producer, Becca. Becca, what can people expect on the podcast? The extended moments, for sure. Where can people get that? On The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert, wherever you get your podcasts. I use the internet.